Amen. On the week that Jesus died, he spent some days in the temple teaching. The Gospels report that while he's in the temple, there were different groups sending representatives with questions of their own for him to field these questions and to respond publicly to them. And according to the Gospels, these questioners came with plans to trap him. They weren't neutral. They came with plans, with questions and plots to in some way embarrass him or catch him in his words or in some way to get him to answer something that looked absurd to believe. This was their goal and it was not neutral. What happened instead is that Jesus evaded all of their traps. He demonstrated his supreme wisdom. He answered their questions in ways that confounded the listeners and no doubt increased his own credibility with the crowds. One of these encounters, there was a lawyer who came to Jesus with this question. He asked Jesus in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? That question mattered because, well... There are a lot of commandments in the law. Hundreds of them. The law of Moses encompasses Genesis through Deuteronomy. You have hundreds of commands. And if you've ever been asked about what you think is most important in some realm or subject, most important book you've ever read, or most important place you've ever visited, most important relationship you've ever had, you can write a long list of those kinds of most important sounding questions. Well, so here's this lawyer. He comes to Jesus in Matthew 22, and his question is, what is the most important law of all of God's commands? Is there one that stands above them all? Jesus' answer is in Matthew 22, 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Jesus answers the question. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to have to go away and think about that. Never given that much reflection. Instead, he says to the lawyer who's there in front of him, words straight out of the Old Testament. And these straight out of the Old Testament words are from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. So here we have in Deuteronomy 6 what Jesus will call the greatest commandment. The most important of all of the commands of God. The unit of verses this morning is more than verse 5. It's verses 4 through 9 where verse 5 is located. And this passage this morning is very interestingly located and placed. What comes in the previous chapter? You know, in Deuteronomy 6, we're looking at this great commandment. But Deuteronomy 5 gave you a whole list of commands. The preceding chapter is a repetition of the Ten Commandments. And the first time you read about the Ten Commandments, it's at Mount Sinai when the Israelites hear the thundering voice of Yahweh in Exodus chapter 20. We see a whole new generation exists in the context of Deuteronomy now. From Sinai to the border of the Promised Land, a lot has happened. Forty years of wilderness wandering because of a disobedient and rejection of Moses' Uh, leadership and Yahweh's commands, that rejection of and disobedience of the people has resulted in judgment for decades. The discipline of the Lord upon them, and after those decades, Moses is going to take a new generation that had grown up in the wilderness, and he's going to exhort them that Joshua will lead them into the land. And Deuteronomy is the final sermons of Moses. He's 120 years old, 
And they're on the cusp of inheriting the promised land that God told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about. And at the cusp of the promised land, Moses is reiterating some important and earlier instructions. In this new generation, they weren't all alive when they were at Mount Sinai with their ancestors hearing Ten Commandments. Moses is reiterating them in Deuteronomy 5. But when Jesus is asked, what's the great commandment? Isn't it interesting that none of the ten are quoted? We might instead say that Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, which Jesus does quote, summarizes what all the commandments are aiming at. So that it's not just one of the particular ten. What are they trying to come together as a cluster of commands guiding the heart of God's people to do? And the answer is to love God. This is what Moses wants Israel to do. He's their mediator. And instead of giving one of the Ten Commandments, he says in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and following, what has now become known as one of the most important passages in the Revelation to the Hebrews, sometimes called the Shema. In Deuteronomy 6, not only should we note, first of all, the placement of this passage after the Ten Commandments, we should also notice what follows it. After our passage this morning, there's a whole long part of Deuteronomy to come. Deuteronomy, the rest of chapter 6 and all the way through about chapter 26, where a series of commandments and reiterated instructions are going to come to pass. Deuteronomy is longer than just chapter 26, but primarily the commandments in the book extend in the core through chapter 26. And that means the passage this morning is like a threshold. It's the passage that appears after the Ten Commandments are repeated, and it's the passage before a whole long set of applications and explanations of what it means to follow God. This passage today is a very important passage in both its content and where it is located in the literary flow of the book. Let's look together at the command to love the Lord in verses 4 and 5. The reason this is called sometimes the Shema is because these verses open with, Hear, O Israel. And the word Shema is connected to the Hebrew word for hearing, listening. So the word Shema is a reference to what comes in verses 4 and following. And it's named for the opening verb, hear. This is a hear, O Israel. The covenant community should be given this command. That the attentiveness that follows should be something community-wide. Hear, O Israel. Moses is going to tell them this. He's their mediator, and he has words to guide their lives. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. At core, what he's aiming at is loyalty to Yahweh above all. That's the idea. Loyalty to Yahweh, the allegiance of the people. But before he calls them to love God with all that they are, he grounds it in this notion in verse 4 that sounds more like a confession than a command. Verse 4 is what they confess, and the command in verse 5 fits with the truth of what they've confessed. Verse 4, this confession, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God... The Lord is one. This idea of the Lord being one has a couple possibilities that I don't think are at odds for us to understand this uh, verse, what it means to interpret it. 
Well, the first idea, it touches upon what ancient Near Eastern gods were presumed to have as true of their own natures and personalities. And that is to be a set of deities and a pantheon of people worshipped or gods worshipped, pantheon of deities that were constantly under shift, that could change, that could overlap with one another, that had no strong boundary and distinction, that were not unchanging. There was a fluidity in these ancient or eastern deities, not a unity, not a oneness, not an unchanging, immutable reality. And as one Old Testament commentator says, because in the ancient world divinity was seen as fluid, this is declaring a truth over against the false understandings of the authority in the world. He says that divine beings in the ancient world were thought of as shifting. The Shema declares differently regarding God. The one true God, Yahweh. It rejects any shift within God. Any division within God. Yahweh is not an undivided, unbounded, fluid and unstable deity. The Lord is one and it is a declaration of his undivided nature and unity. And not only is it true that God is one, both in his being and purposes, unlike these ancient or eastern deities falsely worshipped by the contemporaries of Moses' day, we also know that in Deuteronomy there's a special emphasis that the Lord is one, meaning one God. And one way to translate this is the Lord our God, the Lord is one Lord, one Lord. Meaning that not only is this the unity of God being declared over against false understandings of who's in charge of the world. It's an emphasis that there is only one God to be worshipped. In Deuteronomy we see this in several chapters. To give one example in Deuteronomy 4.35. There is no other besides him. It is a declaration of the monotheistic faith of the Israelites. There are not many gods. There is one God. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 39, the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. How different is this from the ancient or eastern realities around them where in their documents and in their worldviews, they would say there are gods in heaven above and on earth beneath. And in Deuteronomy 4, 39, Yahweh is God and there is no other. It is a denial of other deities and an assertion of the reality of the one true God worshipped by Israel. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, Yahweh says, there is no God beside me. This is what makes the first and second commandments make sense. That you shall not have other gods before God. This is the first commandment. And that you're not to make an image of this one true God out of created things like idolaters would do. The first two commandments in the Ten Commandments are, are based on this notion of what God is like. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What is God like, this God whom they worship? Well, he's not some divisible and unbounded being. He's the undivided unity, the divine essence, unchanging, full of majesty, power, and glory, and there's no other God besides God. These are the implications of Deuteronomy 6, 4. Yahweh's unity and uniqueness. The commandment is built on this. Not only is God an undivided God, 
we are to respond with an undivided allegiance to Him. You see in verse 5 how all-encompassing these phrases are? Loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That given the reality of this God, that who He is and that there's none besides Him, what should that mean for His people, His image bearers? It should mean that we would esteem and love this God. That we would submit and confess this God. That we would follow and obey this God. That if the Bible is teaching what the one true God is like, that means something for us. Wholehearted obedience. Wholehearted devotion to God. And this means Moses is not delaying the the, uh, application here. Early here in this passage, what does he expect of us? That knowing that there is one God reigning over all in heaven and on earth, we are to love this God. That is the application of this passage. That we would have our hearts addressed by the words of God and find within ourselves the desire and longing to know and to follow and love the God who has called us. You shall love the Lord your God, we're told. Now this command love is something you find in a number of spots in Deuteronomy. But did you know that this is the first time in the Bible we are called to love God? There is call to love. Love your neighbor as yourself appears in Leviticus 19.18. But prior to this, there are calls to obey the Lord and fearing God and worshiping God. And here you shall love the Lord your God. This is the first time in the Bible we're told to love God. That doesn't mean there would have been no concept or desire or understanding to do that. We're simply talking about what commands appear where and when. And here in the biblical record, the first time a call to love God appears here in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. There are plenty of occasions after this where we're also called to love the Lord. This is the first. And truly the God who has made himself known to the patriarchs and those previous to them, and not only to the patriarchs and those previous, but all those generations that followed... This God should be one to whom people come with awe and even a holy fear, a holy dread in the sense that they know they are sinners and that he is not only a God who ought to be loved, but a God who is holy and righteous and that all of his judgments are just and right. These Israelites are to be in a covenant relationship with God and in a covenant relationship, one of the things that most fits a covenant life is the dynamic of love. This is more than emotion. It's more than feeling. We know that when he says, Hear, O Israel, he's addressing for people to listen and to obey. That's what it meant to tune your ear to something being described. Something being given and revealed. To hear, O Israel, would mean not to just say, in one ear, out the other. To really hear, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. It's to hear with the preparation to respond with one's life. We are calling sinners to respond with their lives to what God has made known of Himself. And God is one. He is the only God and one who is worthy of all praise and honor. And He ought to be therefore followed, esteemed, worshipped, obeyed. One way to describe this is that you're to love Him. Love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Those are meant to be encompassing phrases of your life. A whole life response. In other words, it represents the whole person. 
The heart is often understood to be the recesses of your reasoning and deliberation. The soul, the place of your personhood overlapping with the heart. The might, referring to your energy and application of life. All that you are inwardly and outwardly living for God. In other words, that your loyalty and your allegiance be to God. That's what it is to love Him. It's, this is more than an emotion. This is more than a feeling. It's about having your life oriented toward what would be glorifying to God and honoring to God. It is a God-centered life. What is Deuteronomy 6.5 calling you to live? Calling you to live a God-centered life. God is worthy of nothing less than that. If you have no desire to live a God-centered life, what this may mean is that you do not know God. That you have no grasp of His worth and grandeur. His greatness and power. His authority and righteousness. These ideas of loving the Lord with our heart and soul and might are not even something that can fully encompass His worth and glory. Even our whole life obedience will fall short of His glory. And yet, the Israelites would not be right to have a mindset in their midst that I can be in a real covenant relationship with God where I'm going to know God and commune with God and bless God and walk in His favor and love and not love God with my heart, soul, and might. They should know that they are being called to respond with their heart and life to Him with allegiance. You will commit your life to something. You're going to devote your time, your thoughts, your resources, your plans. You've got priorities. And here, this is a testing point for all of God's image bearers. Because we recognize that left to ourselves, we don't necessarily have a whole life commitment toward what would matter for our obedience, one of great worth like the Lord our God. You will commit your life to something and devote it. Is it to yourself? Is it to the things of this world? Do you spend your thoughts and your time and your efforts and your plans devoted on money and power or pleasure or reputation? You're going to devote yourself to something. You're going to live for something. You're going to give your heart and your soul and your might to something. And none of it is worthy like God is worthy. Only God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you should love God because you are not made to give your heart to what is not God. Love the Lord. Do you have a sense of His great worth? Have you pondered His supremacy and His greatness? Have you been awed by His sovereignty and by His power? Have you been undone like Isaiah by His holiness and His righteousness? Have His mercy and His love and His redeeming grace staggered your imagination? Love the Lord. There is one God and He is worthy. These are the commands. The command. The great and most important command. Because the notion that the Ten Commandments are unpacking about not having other gods, about not making graven images, about not taking His name in vain, and you just keep on going. These are, these are directing the life of what it is, positively put, to love God. Because loving God is compromised by rebelling from Him. <laughs> if we are turning from God and rebelling against Him and pursuing sin and wickedness, our love for God is compromised by pursuit of sin. So when we say, you need to love the Lord, we would also want to add what the New Testament Gospels are including in this uh, exhortation about pursuing Christ 
And that is to turn and repent of sin. Loving God, turn from sin. Pursuing the Lord, abandoning rebellion and wickedness. Love the Lord. Think on His worth, His greatness, His power, His redeeming love. Verses 4 and 5 give you that command. And verses 6 through 9 give you the responsibility to teach this love. The responsibility to teach this love starts in verse 6 like this. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, now there is a true sense in which these words can have an an all-embracing feel of not just what's just been said. Moses continues to talk, continues to give words. In fact, he's been giving words in chapter 5. A lot of words are being unfolded. We should certainly have in mind that the words of God revealed even earlier and later are to be upon the hearts of God's people to love and direct our lives. Now in verse 6, there could be a very particular or immediate sense of these words. What if most truly he's talking about verses 4 and 5? That this Shema, this hero Israel, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And to love God, these words, those that you just heard in verse 5. Not to the exclusion of other words, but especially these words in verse 5. These words I command you shall be on your heart. Which means the most important commandment is to be in the most important place in your life. And that is upon your heart. You're going to live out what's there. You're going to live out what's there. What your heart desires, what your heart esteems, what your heart pursues, that's what's going to be lived out. Your steps are going to be according to that. So here's what's most needed. That this command to love God is something you internalize, that you know is true. You want it in your heart. You want it internalized. You want it etched upon your heart. Like writing upon something to be engraved. In fact, in verses 7 and following, there's this idea of passing on these commandments We could rightly say, as John Piper puts it, the first assignment a parent has after loving God is to store God's word in his heart to then teach it to his children. In other words, we have this responsibility to teach this love and we are to teach others what we ourselves have come to know and love in our own hearts. These these words I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Because it turns out you will also teach your children what matters most to you as well. Well, You will convey by your words and by your examples some sort of priority. But I wonder if it's the Bible's priority. I wonder if it's what the Bible says should be on your heart. I mean, your cultures around us. Tell us all sorts of things that we should live for and pursue and what we should want for our children. What is it that we should want most? What is it that should be on our heart? What is it that should impact the generations that are coming? What is it that we should prioritize with our words and our example? He says, these words I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Oh, Moses knows the connection that we will communicate what matters to us. And that's why we need to make sure that what God says is most important is most important to us. Loving God. In verses 7 and following, this unpacking of what it is to love God and to know Him and to teach them. Teaching diligently to your children, talking of them when, you sitting in your, when you're sitting in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. This is po- full of poetic phrasing, isn't it? It's meant to capture the various scenes of life. 
All of us are here this morning because we got up. So at the end of verse 7, when you rise, and right before you rose, you had lain down at some point, so lying down. You, you, made, you made efforts to get here. You were on your way. And I don't mean just in your car. And you were walking. Running, maybe, if you were late. <laughs> shall, talking of them, shall talk of them when you sit in your house. So you have context of being able to be in, uh, in a setting in the home where you're in conversation. When you're walking along the way. When you're lying down. When you're rising. It's about these snapshots, isn't it, of life. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house. You will talk about what matters to you. It's inevitable. You will talk about what's most important to you. But again, presses the point, right? Is what's most important, most important to you? Is what matters above all the thing that characterizes what you want to communicate? And He says here in verse 7, think about the next generation. Not just your own life, but those that are coming afterward. Training them talking with them, catechizing them about knowing God. That's what it means to teach diligently. It means to press consistently upon the next generation because we want to care about those who come afterward. Now, I have had professing Christians say to me, well, I want my children to make their own religious choices. So I don't feel like I should push the things of the gospel upon their mind. I just want my child to be able to find their way on their own. Okay, let's think about that for a moment. That's not a good plan. Amen. Amen. First of all, mom and dad, you're not smarter than the Bible. And the Bible tells you to talk to your children about this. Amen. The Bible here in Deuteronomy 6 is calling you to impart truth to your children. All the minds of the generation coming up around us are being taught all the time by all sorts of directions and angles about all sorts of stuff. Are you just going to sit this one out? This is the most important truth there is. That there is one God and we ought to love this God with all that we are. Well, I just really want them to find their way on their own. Then you need to consider, my dear parent, your love for God in your heart, soul, and might. And the worth of God and the supremacy of God for your own life. If you think it's in some way an expendable notion for those you care about. John Piper puts it this way. He's addressing here the notion that what if parents think to themselves, I really don't want to be the one to impart these things to my children. He says this teaches them that Jesus doesn't matter that much. That mom and dad don't consider him nearly as important or exciting as new furniture or weekends at the lake or dad's job or all the other things that fill up conversation. Silence about Christ is dogma. Not to teach the infinite value of Christ is to teach that he is negligible. In other words, if our words or example convey that Jesus is not much to talk about, then we are teaching them wrongly about Jesus. He is everything. For Him, through Him, all things exist. So we look at this command to love God and then the implications in verses 6 and following to have it upon our hearts and to teach diligently to others about loving God and we see how all-encompassing this is. Keep using this word of all-embracing and all-encompassing because the activity is that way with the phrasing, isn't it? 
It says in verse 7, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You say, well, he doesn't mention anything there about gathering together with the church. That's not the context here he's mentioning. The context he's mentioning here doesn't exclude the important context of gathering together as the people of God. This is talking about in your regular day-to-day life, Jesus matters, should matter, should be upon our lips and our words where we want to direct people to think about Christ. We don't want to give the impression that we can go through life and learn all about the world God has made without reference to God. The reason math matters is because there is a God who has ordered the world. The reason scientists study the world is because God has filled it with order and patterns that can be tested and noticed and things deduced from them. The reason that historians and archaeologists are doing important work is because this is a world that by His providence contains so many things that have happened with people and events and places that need to be known. In other words, you start listing out all the different realms of education. They all matter ultimately because there is one God. Who should be loved and esteemed above all things. We don't want to come to know and experience God's world without reference to Him. This is my Father's world. He shines in all that's fair. We want to live our lives trying to be attentive to the notion that God has made Himself known. Not only in the special revelation of His Word. He has written His glory and power in the skies and the stars. He is worthy of our awe and our worship. He says here to them in verses 8 and 9, You shall bind them, meaning not the children, the commandments. (laughs) The commandments. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now what's the symbolism here between a hand and and eyes? Thinking here about the hand is uh, representing one's action. One puts hand to activity, and then the frontlets between eyes, no doubt representing how one sees and all associated with the mindset, the mind and and brain behind the eyes. I think this is to symbolize the importance that in what one does and how one deliberates, we're trying to get people to realize we we need to conduct ourselves in the world God has made, ultimately with reference to the God who should be loved and esteemed by His image bearers. Now, over the course of Jewish history, these commands were actually taken quite literally. I think initially we should see a figurative understanding here that he doesn't expect that you would be binding something on your hand or wearing something between your eyes. But external measures were taken as Jewish history unfolded to apply these things. I don't think that has to mean it was a denial of true internal love for God. But some people took these commands to a point where they said, we need to literally have something on our heads. And those things are called phylacteries. Phylacteries. P-H-Y, lacteries. Okay? Phylacteries. I'm not going to try to spell all of that. But phylacteries are small boxes with pieces of parchment or scripture written on them and strapped to one's head. And these phylacteries are actually mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 23. Jesus says in Matthew 23, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And he's talking there about the fringes of garments that in keeping with something in Numbers and Deuteronomy could also associate with uh, putting uh, remembrances on the externals of things. You see, here's the danger. The danger in Jesus' day 
is that they took the commandments of Deuteronomy and didn't worry about whether it was on the heart. They just worried about whether they had it visible for others to see on their head. What good is it if you wear a WWJD bracelet and you don't actually care what would glorify and honor the Lord? You know what I'm saying? Like this is, this is the, the point is the externals do themselves have a snare built in with our human condition. And that is we could easily, we could easily feel quite good about what we display and present without wondering about what's behind and beneath all of that. And so he says in verse 9, this is now back to Moses, not Jesus. Uh, Moses in Deuteronomy 6, 9. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The, I think this is meant to say publicly, be unashamed that you know and love God. This is what the doorposts of a house would mean, right? This is indicating the public nature of posts or gates. Probably less so the gates of your home. Most Israelite homes would not have necessarily had gates. Some wealthy estates certainly would. But, but cities in the land of Israel, cities in the land of Israel would certainly have gates. I think we're looking at concentric circles. Upon the heart, to the children, in the home and doorposts, city gates. In other words, it starts to move more broadly. But must be anchored in the heart. That's the key. And we know that there were Israelites in the course of their history that also took things and wrote them on doorposts. In fact, they named it for the Hebrew idea of doorpost, which means, which is mezuzah. So phylacteries on the head, mezuzah on the doorpost, which was a display in some kind of container of divine instructions. Now, that, when you went to someone's home and they had a mezuzah on their doorpost, obviously you don't know their heart, but you might think to yourself, okay, I might know something about these people and what they would want me to know of them. And that is that on their doorposts is something that part of the, being part of the community of Yahweh is going to have. We always run the risk, however, of not paying attention to the heart most deeply at all. You know, I, I love a good piece of wall art, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm great with these, you know, aisles and Hobby Lobby that have uh, scriptures on, on things that you can put on your walls and doorposts. Deuteronomy 6 is the origin story for Hobby Lobby, okay? This is like all the doorposts and the walls. This is, this is it. This is where it comes from, right? But think of it this way. If your wall art doesn't match your heart art, if it doesn't, no matter what, how welcoming your wall is and how beautiful the calligraphy is, if you don't love God with your heart, soul, and might, then you're just performing deeds to be seen by others. And of what good is it for you? So what is Deuteronomy 6 really trying to get at? He's trying to get at the heart of the Israelites in covenant with their maker of heaven and earth. And that they would care not only for their own hearts, but for those that are coming afterward. And we read in Proverbs 6, language about the commands of God that seem to actually echo Deuteronomy 6. Let's see what we can hear in Proverbs 6 with Deuteronomy 6. Proverbs 6.20, My son, keep your father's commandment, forsake not your mother's teaching, bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. See, see the, the reason you want to talk 
with those in your home about the commands of God is because you won't always be there when they rise up and lie down and walk. You want the commands of God to be with them when you're no longer with them. You want to teach them truth. You want to point them to Christ. You want to speak about loving God. And here's what Jesus says in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know what Jesus would have no category for? And what the biblical authors, both in the Old and New Testaments, would have no category for? The idea that you can love God and not care what he says. That his commandments would be as nothing to you. Friend, if you don't care about living your life for the glory of God, quit saying you love God. Because the God of the Bible is not the treasure of your heart. The God of the Bible is not the one for whom you are living. And you should hear the words then and heed the words of Deuteronomy 6. To love God with your heart, soul, and might. You are made to know Him. Not for lesser things. Not to devote your life for lesser things. Come to know God. Trust in Christ. Love Jesus with your heart, soul, and might. We're talking about allegiance. We're talking about obedience. This is what it means to say Jesus is Lord. That's not an empty word. It's to declare his authority and his supremacy. So you have to ask yourself this morning in your heart, what's written upon your heart that you're living out? Do you have a love for God? Do you trust in him? Do you hope in him? Do you believe he's died on the cross for your sins? Do you want your life to respond to his worth and his holiness and his redeeming love? Love God with your heart, soul, and mind. Turn from your sin. Hope in Christ. He will receive you. In Joshua 24, in the last chapter of the book, Joshua said to the Israelites, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him sincerely and in faithfulness. Put away the gods your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. Maybe some of you need to hear that word this morning because you think to yourself, My parents didn't teach me about loving God. They didn't worship God. Well, then Joshua 24 is for you this morning. Then put away the false gods they worshipped. Put away the gods from the river and from Egypt. And you need to know the living God. Your parents might not have spoken of the word of God when you rise up and when you lie down and when you walk upon the way. But your past doesn't have to be your future. Joshua 24, 14 says, put away the gods of your idolatrous ancestors and serve Yahweh. May your resolution be Joshua's. He says in Joshua 24, 15, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray.